Welcome to episode 16 of the Security Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated security business sector. My name's Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Security Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the security event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Focusing on the latest major news stories now and a parliamentary bill designed to modernise the government's powers to investigate and intervene in potentially hostile foreign direct investment that could threaten the UK's national security has just been introduced by ministers. Under the new National Security and Investment Bill, the government will be taking a targeted and proportionate approach towards ensuring that it's able to scrutinise, impose conditions on, or as a very last resort to block any deal in any sector where it's deemed that there's an unacceptable risk posed to national security. The new regime will update the UK's current power which are almost two decades old now and don't actually reflect the current threatscape. It will also bring these powers into line with those of the nation's closest allies without hindering the UK's world-leading reputation as an attractive place in which to invest. In essence, this will mean that no deal which could threaten the safety of the British people goes unchecked, while at the same time ensuring vulnerable businesses are not successfully targeted by potential investors seeking to cause them harm. The new regime will apply to investors from any country, but will remain both targeted and proportionate, such that most transactions will be clear without any intervention. Foreign direct investment projects can continue to boost jobs and stimulate the economy across the UK while ensuring that, as stated, the nation remains an attractive place for investment. By bringing the UK's regime into the 21st century, the government will make the screening system both slicker and quicker for investors, providing certainty and transparency by working to clear timelines for decisions and making admin procedures far smoother than before. Under the bill, investors and businesses alike will have to notify dedicated government units through a single digital portal about certain types of transactions in designated sense sectors, such as the defence, energy and transport arenas, in order to ensure it can investigate and take action to address any national security risks posed. The bill will also extend screening powers such that the government can interrogate the acquisition of sensitive assets and intellectual property, as well as the acquisition of companies. Investments will be screened much more quickly than is the case in the current regime. Transactions should be assessed within 30 working days, and often faster, with timelines set out in law rather than by the government on a case-by-case basis, as is the practice at the moment. The majority of transactions will require no intervention and will be able to proceed quickly and with certainty in the knowledge that the government will not revisit a transaction once cleared unless inaccurate information was provided. Speaking about this move, Business Secretary Alok Sharma has commented, the UK remains one of the most attractive investment destinations in the world and we want to keep it that way. Hostile actors should be in no doubt that there's no backdoor into the nation. This bill will mean that we can continue to welcome job-creating investment to our shores while shutting out those who could threaten the safety of the British people. Kevin Ellis, the chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers, has stated, it's vital that the UK continues to be an attractive destination for foreign investments and these measures will help to give much needed certainty and transparency to investors and businesses alike. While we shouldn't underestimate the UK's attractiveness for investments, competition for foreign direct investment is becoming much fiercer now. The bar is being raised across all industries and markets. We cannot rely on existing skills, historical relationships or legacy perceptions to drive a future success. Now more than ever, we need to make it easier for that investment to materialise. Foreign direct investment is crucial to help fund the economy, innovation and, most importantly, jobs. The UK isn't alone in making such changes to its regime. Earlier this year, the United States introduced mandatory notification requirements for transactions concerning specified types of businesses as part of a broader programme for reform. In addition, the Australian government introduced legislation to its parliament requiring foreign investors to seek approval to acquire a direct interest in sensitive national security businesses. Overall, then, the National Security and Investment Bill will make interactions with government much faster as the UK remains open for trade and continues its ongoing 
fight against COVID-19. For its part, the new investment security unit will sit within the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and provide a single point of contact for businesses wishing to understand the bill and notify the government about any transactions. The investment security unit will also coordinate cross-government activity to identify, assess and then respond to national security risks arising through market activity, thereby providing certainty for businesses that they will not be targeted and exploited by hostile actors. The latest report produced by the Security Research Initiative has now been published. Entitled Understanding Influences on Security as a Career or Job Choice, What Those Working in the Security Sector Think, the 80-page document authored by Professor Martin Gill, Charlotte Howe and Caitlin McGear at Perpetuity Research examines precisely what makes security attractive to recruits and why, while in parallel also evaluating how the security sector can improve its image and better present itself to the outside world. The report is based on a detailed survey and in-depth interviews conducted with security professionals. Security work is itself involved with protecting people in particular, but also organisations, communities and, importantly, the UK's critical national infrastructure. There's a very real benefit to be had for those involved in keeping people safe and helping to solve problems that matter to others. But the research suggests these particular areas need to be much more prominent when it comes to discussions about security careers. There's a very definite career path available for people in today's security business sector. The widely held belief that this isn't in fact the case is deemed to be an erroneous one. There are many opportunities and lots of different careers available that take a different form from, say, working in the police service or the military. Only 4% of respondents questioned as part of the study had actually heard of work in the security sphere through a careers-focused talk at school, college or university. The most prominent source of awareness, in fact, was from a suggestion by a friend, a colleague or a family member. It emerges that 78% of respondents were attracted to a career in security due to their overriding commitment to protect people and organisations. Interestingly, 83% of respondents believe security is thought of as an industry rather than a profession, while 11% of them enter the security arena in order to gain experience before then leaving to pursue a career in a different sector. However, 68% of those individuals indicated they'd now intend to remain in security, which is very much a positive outcome. One of the main reasons people don't choose to enter a security career is simply because they don't know about it. Neither do people know about the myriad roles available, the value of the work transacted, or indeed the benefits to be gained from doing so. The majority of the sector's cohort, in fact, appear to end up working in security purely by chance. On that particular point, Professor Martin Gill, who led the research, noted, we've discovered that people don't join the security sector because they don't know about it. It's as simple as that. This is a pretty damning indictment, though. Those who do know about the sector generally reflect very positively upon it, noting that it's varied in nature, obviously important, and can even be a lucrative career choice. Going forward, our task as a sector, then, is to ensure that security is no longer a well-kept secret. The widespread perception that security work is low-paid, and sadly, that can all too often be the case as far as the lower-end frontline roles are concerned, actually disguises the fact that many individuals do, as stated, find commercial security work more lucrative than some of the alternatives, certain public sector roles included. However, the very fact that security is seen as low-paid by many is something of a prohibitive factor when it comes to attracting experienced workers, not to mention piquing the interest of those embarking on their first career steps. As the trio of researchers point out in the executive summary of their excellent and thought-provoking document, it's clear that more effort is needed to challenge negative and outdated perceptions and promote the benefits of a career diligently forged in the private security sector. Many myths about security work remain, not least that it's only about security guarding and only suitable for ex-police service or ex-military personnel. In truth, the security sector incorporates a wide array of skill sets, so vast in fact that there's a wide pool of talented people who could be attracted to its ranks. The research unearthed the fact that the security sector must determine to update its image. As mentioned, there are many myths about security work, some of them mentioned here, that demand to be challenged, while the benefits of security careers simply must be more widely promoted. There's also an overriding requirement to identify the points at which people receive advice on security careers and inform prospective joiners about the world of good opportunities the 
the security sector genuinely offers. It's abundantly evident from this study that the security sector has to address its highlighted limitations. A significant minority of practitioners appear to be far from happy with their lot. While perceptions of security are to some extent outdated, this would appear to suggest that there are also valid criticisms to be addressed. Obviously, the battle for better conditions both within and also across the sector is an ongoing one. Our first guest on episode 16 of the Security Matters podcast is Neil Williams, Legal Director at Raman Ravelli Solicitors, a legal practice specialising in cases involving white-collar crime, civil fraud and issues around regulatory enforcement. Neil began his career at Raman Ravelli back in 2012 in the role of Senior Associate Solicitor. Having held that position for just shy of seven years, he then became Legal Director in May 2019. Notable and complicated business crime cases involving currency fraud, mortgage fraud and charity fraud are a regular part of Neil's caseload. Tackling cases involving firearms offences, drug trafficking and homicide are among the serious crimes he has dealt with over the years. Allegations pertaining to Forex and multinational investigations into investment fraud are also areas upon which Neil focuses, in addition to representation for individuals accused of corruption in public office. Earlier this week, Neil told me all about the work of the Serious Fraud Office, as well as deferred prosecution agreements, the benefits of self-reporting, and how the pandemic has impacted the SFO. First, though, he concentrates on the key details that today's companies need to know in relation to the Serious Fraud Office. What do you believe are the key details that companies need to know about the Serious Fraud Office, Neil? The Serious Fraud Office um, has the task of investigating and prosecuting complex fraud, bribery and corruption. Um, In that sense, it's unique in its position. Um, And it um, oversees the most complex um, investigations that the country um, undertakes. Now, it's made it clear that cooperation with itself um, rather than going more through the motions, um, will gather, will gain more lenient treatment. Um, and any company who is being investigated by the SFO or individuals um, who have reason to believe that they're about to be investigated have to know exactly how to respond. Now, to do so, you have to understand the functions of the SFO and be able to use this to help construct the strongest defence possible. Now, the SFO has unique skills and um, skilled experts and unique powers, one of which, a powerful tool, tool in its armory, is um, Section 2 of the Criminal Justice Act 1987, um, which is the act, in fact, which created the SFO. And this gives it the power to compel any individual or organisation to provide it with information or documents that it believes are relevant to the investigation. And there are sanctions um, which can be imposed or brought if um, failure to comply with um, Section 2 notice um, is uh, an issue. But um, defence lawyers and business with business crime expertise can challenge SFO allegations um, and there are um, failures in the SFO, there are um, flaws in its investigative um, remit and its ability to investigate um, certain allegations, possibly as a result of passage of time and so on. So it's en- it must be emphasised that um, there are challenges that can be made even though investigations are launched. Now, one of those may be, uh, for instance, uh, challenges to search warrants and the way that the searches are conducted. And as a result of the information which is gathered, uh, perhaps through search warrants illegally obtained or uh, mistakenly obtained, um, these challenges to the evidence can be um, brought. Um, Now, SFO mistakes, um, there's been a high profile example um, whereby challenges to searches of a premises and arrests were made and as a result the SFO had to pay out something in the region of four and a half million um, for the um, flaws as a result of the investigation. 
On the other side of the coin, however, um, where there is investigations and there are concerns regarding the investigations which are taking place, be it by the company or individual, then negotiation can be a valuable way of obtaining the best possible outcome. And it, that's been stressed as a particular point by the current incumbent director, um, Lisa Rosowski, and that's a drum that's been been banging um, for some time as to um, cooperation. Again, that may hint at the ability of the SFO to conduct investigations itself, but also it's an olive branch to companies who do find themselves themselves um, under under the scope and scrutiny of the SFO. What would it take to persuade the serious fraud office not to prosecute a company if it had all the evidence it needed to do so? If you're coming from a position whereby there hasn't historically been um, allegations or suspicions of wrongdoing, then I think it's fair to say that cooperation will be key. Um, now, again, the balancing exercise as to whether or not there there are concerns regarding the um, previous the allegations or previous behaviour of the company, but if that is um, a concern which has weight, then it may be that the company decides um, that to cooperate with the SFO is better than to um, challenge the assertions which are being made. Now, with that in mind, and I think um, there have been you know, some headlines regarding the powers of the SFO, one of them being the ability to um, award or enter into uh, what's known as a deferred prosecution agreement, which essentially is a, a court-approved agreement between a company under investigation and a government prosecutor, in this case the SFO, which allows for the suspension of the prosecution, provided that the company meets certain conditions. Now, DPAs became an alternative to prosecution in the UK on the 24th of January 2014, when um, Schedule 16 of the Crime and Courts Act 2013 came into effect. And to date, the SFO is the only UK law and law agency that, um, that has negotiated uh, DPAs. Now, DPAs can be for any value, and we've seen the heady heights of the um, DPA agreed with um, Airbus, which had eye-watering figures with different agencies involved, including um, the French authorities. Um, and then more recently with the lower end DPAs, which are in the single millions as opposed to billions. So th they're available to a wide ambit of um, companies of varying sizes. And if they are available, then a company may consider that they are um, a useful um, alternative to what could be a protracted and lengthy costly um, investigation and prosecution process. And what guidance has this serious short office given to date regarding deferred prosecution agreement deal? Well, there's been a number of um, guidance issued or on different occasions, guidance has been issued by the SFO most recently in October 2020 this year. And again, this follows on from the um, mantra which has been coming out from the SFO over the last couple of years of cooperation. And cooperation is key with regards to DPAs and it's the level of cooperation which a company um, puts forward. And that's reflected in many ways in the DPAs which we've seen coming out um, in judgments from the courts once they're approved. There are usual um, elements of a DPA um, which come to the fore, mainly cooperation and then um, regime change within a company um, to show that it was different from the time when the alleged offending took place. Um, now, issues, admissions of guilt are also always a thorny issue when it comes to um, 
cooperating with the SFO because a company may not want to go that far. Um, and the guidance that's been issued recently um, confirms that company company entering into a DPA is not required formally to admit guilt um, in respect of the offences which are charged in the indictment, although it will need to admit the contents and meaning of key documents um, referred to in the statement of facts that accompanies the DPA. Now, the statement of facts, I should say, is um, what the uh, court will um, set out as the background to the alleged offending. And as I say, cooperation, which is reiterated throughout the newly published published guidance has been stated as a key factor to consider whether to, when deciding whether to enter into a DPA. Um, and cooperation will include well-established steps, well-established steps of self-reporting, the wrongdoing, um, taking remedial action and preserving evidence, um, amongst other things. However, there's still no guarantee that cooperation will lead to a DPA, and the approach on waiving privilege is less clear. Um, privilege has been litigated through the courts as to whether or not um, it's something which um, the SFO, uh, well, it's, it's an issue which the SFO has raised um, in the courts uh, recently. And it seems that failing to waive privilege will not result in penalising a company, but adopting such practice may mean that company does not succeed in meeting the requirements of cooperation for a DPA. It's on a case-by-case -case basis. Can it be argued that there are real benefits in a company self-reporting any wrongdoing? Well, I think in short, yes. There is, under um, a recent Freedom of Information request to the SFO in relation to self-reporting of bribery and corruption allegations, um, the response was that uh, two companies self-reported bribery and corruption concerns um, between the period of October the 1st, 2009 and September the 30th, 2019, went on to be prosecuted. And... This means that the other companies that self-reported such concerns either gained or entered into a deferred prosecution agreement or faced no action. Um, and as a result of the information disclosed, um, a total of 21 individuals were charged as a result of self-reporting in that period, nine of which were from the two companies that were prosecuted. So this is perhaps um, practical proof of a theoretical argument that self-reporting is beneficial to a company because if we consider that the period we inquired about saw nine individuals prosecuted from companies that were also prosecuted, it also saw 12 individuals charged from companies that self-reported and yet escaped prosecution. Now, that may cause a conflict between the individuals within a company um, and the company itself, but it does seem to show that um, self-reporting will um, focus the SFO's attention in a different light when deciding whether or not um, there is to be prosecutions which flow as a result of wrongdoing which is identified. And lastly, Neil, how do you feel the pandemic has affected the serious fraud office? Well, the pandemic has affected every aspect of society um, in many ways, and the SFO is no different. Um, investigations continue, um, the wheels of justice must still turn, but there are difficulties faced by every, each um, investigative body, be it the police, um, the FCA, the NCA and the SFO as to how they deal with the challenges which are faced by the pandemic and the ability to function properly. Um, there will be issues with regards to evidence gathering and restrictions on movements affect us all, um, not least investigative bodies. And one of the issues which um, will arise is the um, issue of interviews of suspects. Now, 
the SFO made it clear that there was no legal basis for interviews to be conducted remotely as a response to um, the pandemic. And it's no, found no legally acceptable alternative to face-to-face -face meetings. However, that's perhaps at odds with how other investigative agencies are dealing with um, the issue of interviews. The police have been known to adopt um, a policy where possible of remote interviews taking place. I think we've all come to learn and understand the benefits of video conferencing, and that's um, been reflected in the way in which certain investigative bodies conduct their business. And the SFO are perhaps, albeit a little slower to respond, are responding to it in a way which will allow for interviews to take place. So leaving aside the issue of interviews, um, the difficulties which the SFO face is mainly um, in regards to the gathering of information. The, the allegations which come to the attention of the SFO invariably involve historical um, wrongdoing and their um, investigative tools require um, documentation to be obtained um, and for that to be reviewed properly. Now, having that having an inability to fully exercise its powers as a result of restrictions on movements and lockdowns in certain areas will curtail its ability to um, investigate, investigate as quickly and thoroughly as it would like. Um, therefore, there has to be change in adapting to the new to the new normal so that um, they're able to gather the information they need and to investigate the individuals properly um, in order to decide whether or not either agreement on a course of action by way of a uh, deferred prosecution agreement or whether or not they've got sufficient information to pursue a prosecution. So the impact has been great on all agencies and I think once we emerge from the shadows of the pandemic, um, we'll see greater um, output from the SFO in terms of what it's been doing whilst the pandemic has taken hold. Um, but it's certainly been an opportunity for them to clear their decks in terms of historical um, investigations, which they've had for some time, and with an eye to the future as to where the trends will be um, as a result of fraud, which is being perpetuated during this current pandemic. Focusing on the news once again now, and in particular the subject of cyber security. Boardroom investments in cyber are most commonly the result of an incident or fears of compliance audit failure. That's according to an independent global study just commissioned by Thycotic and designed to examine what most influences the board to invest in cyber security and the impact this has on chief information security officers' decision making. Based on the comments received from more than 900 CISOs and senior IT decision makers, the research reveals that 58% of those decision makers host organisations are planning to add more security budget in the next 12 months. There are positive signs that boards of directors are stepping up with investment. 77% of respondents have received boardroom investment for new security projects, either in response to a cyber incident in their organisation or through fear of audit failure. With financial penalties for general data protection regulation infringements now totaling 175 million euros, almost a quarter of respondents believe that compliance or threats of fines are the most effective way in which to persuade boards to invest in cyber security measures. Amid growing cyber threats and rising risks through the COVID crisis, CISOs report 
report that boards are listening and stepping up with increased budget for cybersecurity, with 90% agreeing that the board adequately supports them with investment. Almost three in five believe that in the next financial year, they'll have more security budget due to COVID-19. However, CISOs have their work cut out to gain the board support. Almost two-fifths of participants' proposed investments were turned down because the threat was perceived as being low risk or due to the belief that the technology involved had a lack of demonstrable return on investment. 33% of respondents to the study believe senior management doesn't actually comprehend the scale of the threat posed when making cybersecurity investment decisions. CISO's own approaches towards buying decisions are forward-looking as they try to keep up with industry developments and their sector peers. 75% say they want to try out innovative new tools. However, in practice, they appear to be guided by their industry peers, with almost half benchmarking their buying decisions against other companies in their sector. This may lead CISOs to err on the side of proven known technology rather than trying something new by way of a solution. This study clearly shows that before CISOs can pursue technology innovation, they must first educate their stakeholders about the value of cybersecurity itself. Securing boardroom investment requires them to strike a delicate balance between innovation and compliance. This balance is discernible in the way that decision makers describe their organisation's risk profiles. Almost half of respondents view their organisation as being in the pack, while only a third consider their companies to be pioneers embracing advancements in new technology. Only 17% of those questioned believe their business has its finger on the pulse, prioritising investment according to the latest security threats. The discovery that boards of directors mainly approve investments after a security incident or through fear of regulatory penalties for non-compliance would appear to suggest that cybersecurity investment decisions are more about insurance than any desire to lead the field which, in the long run, almost inevitably limits the industry's ability to keep pace with the cybercriminals. The Security Institute has announced that Peter Lavery will become its new chair from next January, taking over the role from Professor Alison Wakefield when her three-year term of office finishes at the end of December. A fellow of the Institute, Lavery brings a wealth of experience within the security sector to the role, having dedicated many years of pro bono service to the organisation. He was voted on to the Board of Directors by the membership in April 2017, having previously served on the Institute's validation board for several years. Lavery has also held the role of Deputy Chair since 2018, playing a key role in the Institute's senior leadership team and overseeing a period of significant and continuing growth and development for the organisation. Lavery chairs the Audit Committee for the Board and has been leading on a number of external engagement initiatives designed to help promote the Institute and its values to government and other key stakeholders alike. Outside of his role at the Security Institute, Lavery boasts an impressive track record of further contributions to the security business sector. He serves as a trustee of the Cross-Sector Safety and Security Communications Charity and is also a member of the London Resilience Forum. Serving on the latter's business sector panel, Lavery contributes towards mitigating the impacts of Brexit, terrorist attacks and most recently COVID-19. Following 22 years with the Royal Military Police, including 14 years undertaking close protection operations for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, Lavery has worked in corporate security across the manufacturing, finance, telecoms and real estate sectors. Commenting on the news, Lavery stated, Today's uncertain political and economic landscape, together with the ever-present threat of terrorism, presents challenges and opportunities for our essential workers and organisations, all of whom look to the Institute to help them manage their skills and progression during what's a time of protracted uncertainty. He continued, We will carry on championing the professional development of our members and the wider sector and continued awareness of the important role that's played by the security sector in protecting society, while at the same time supporting changes like Martin's Law through a partnership approach with the security community as well as industry and government. Professor Alison Wakefield responded, Peter boasts a detailed knowledge of the workings of the Institute and indeed the wider security sector and is very well respected and liked by Institute members, fellow directors and the team at headquarters as well as by key external stakeholders. The Institute will appreciate and benefit from a new chair in 2021 with new energy and ideas to maintain the momentum of our continuing growth in both size and influence. 
Also joining us on this edition of the Security Matters podcast are Mark Reese and Sarah Fisher. Mark is the Managing Director and Sarah the Sales Director at 360 Vision Technology, the British manufacturer of specialist surveillance solutions for today's practicing security professionals. A member of the Security Institute, Mark began his journey in the security sector back in 1988, spending five years with distributor Norbane as a field sales engineer. 1993 witnessed a switch to Honeywell and a nine-year spell as Southern Area Sales Manager. Mark joined 360 Vision Technology in May 2002 in the role of Business Development Director, becoming Managing Director of their uncorn-based business in September 2018. Sarah Fisher gained an MBA from the University of Bedfordshire in 2008. In terms of her career in the security world, Zara worked at AMG Systems for 22 years and across various sales-related roles during that time, culminating in her appointment as Sales and Marketing Director. Zara then moved to 360 Vision Technology in January of this year, spending seven months as Business Development Director before taking on the role of Sales Director. During the interview for this edition of the Security Matters podcast, Zara focuses on how the business has coped during the pandemic and also explains why 360 Vision Technology is more than just a camera manufacturer. First of all, Mark told me about the significant changes that he's witnessed across the sector in recent times. Mark, as the Managing Director of a UK-based surveillance camera manufacturing business, what are the significant changes you've witnessed in the sector in recent times? Um, well, I think, Brian, if you look back over the last uh, five years, particularly uh, the advent of IP technology, um, the, the transition from analog to IP, that's figured very, very heavily in not only the industry, but in our manufacturing uh, sphere, really. I think um, moving into into IP has been a challenge because obviously a lot of our team and a lot of our history has been based around analog, um, but it actually represents over 95% of our sales now. So it's been a, a shift towards design and, and research purely and simply in IP technology. What opportunities and or challenges have arisen due to the COVID-19 pandemic, would you say? Well, I think two sides, really. I mean, I think if you if you address the challenges first, I think the, the biggest challenge for us is, is that we've not seen a downturn uh, as far as manufacturing order requirement is concerned, but it's actually having uh, the, the customer network to actually install the systems. Uh, we're very fortunate. We are considered as a, a critical uh, key supplier, mainly because of our critical national infrastructure uh, capabilities. Uh, so from that point of view, a lot of our projects, a lot of our our customers are in that nuclear, utilities, uh, military sphere. So it, I won't say it's COVID proof. It's obviously still gone ahead during these very, very difficult times. Um, but basically, those customers had urged us at a very, very early stage in lockdown to remain open, to remain manufacturing, uh, which we did. Uh, we shut down everything apart from the factory. We sent everyone else home. Uh, so everybody's been home working uh, within the company uh, since the middle of March now. But the actual factory staff and the factory operators and, and all of the manufacturing team have actually still been present in the factory. So the challenges have been really, to be fair, the logistics of, of actually, <laughs> believe it or not, collecting product um, because obviously deliveries can be hampered as well. Um, but the challenges, certainly uh, my team has, has risen to that um, and we've, we've been able to carry on pretty much uh, no, as normal. As far as the opportunities are concerned, that's a really interesting one. Us, like a lot of companies, I, I have no doubt, uh, have 
suffered in the sense that we can't physically get in front of people. We, we can't actually uh, retain that personal approach to, to, to customer visits, customer demonstrations, proof of concepts, that sort of thing. So we've had to turn our uh, attention really to digital, um, what we can do in, in uh, a digital world. And I have to say to a certain extent that it's actually yielded some fantastic results for us. Uh, Sarah particularly, and I'm sure she'll expand on it a, a little bit later, but has really been driving the team to uh, create the awareness and, and remain relevant with customers. Um, so a lot of the video seminars that we've been doing, webinars, and I think there's one uh, one term that I'm going to firmly credit to Sarah, which is Deminar. Uh, so we've been very, very active in that field in ensuring that we're keeping in front of customers. We're, we're making them aware of, of what we're doing as a business, um, but probably more importantly, taking the time to actually use it for good training um, uh, scenarios. So the likes of consultants who are very, very important to our business, uh, we've had some fantastic uh, sessions with consultants, and from that perspective, it's meant that we've uh, we've kept in touch with with customers. We've become very very relevant, um, and also our uh, digital media platform, our social media platform, uh, has significantly increased in both traffic and also content during these times. So I'd say certainly from our perspective, the opportunity is, has has been allowed for us to to reboot. Uh, remarket and uh, re-engage really with customers that perhaps ordinarily we wouldn't have uh, got in touch with. And Zara, in your marketing communications, you often describe 360 vision technology as more than just a camera manufacturer. Could you expand on what you mean by that comment, please? Yeah, absolutely. I can do, Brian. I mean, I, I've obviously only recently joined 360 back in January. And what's been, um, I guess, extremely refreshing for me is to come into another uh, UK manufacturer that has so much differentiation. Um, and I think what's been quite insightful for me is as I've been going around the customers in the last few months and having our, our various sort of online meetings that we've had to do, um, there's so many um, differentiators in 360 that actually the, the market hasn't really been aware of. Um, and what I mean by that is obviously we're a UK camera manufacturer, you know, not just um, in the security industry, but, but internationally, the big brands, a lot, a lot more of those companies have been manufacturing uh, products out in the Far East. We don't do any of that at all. We are wholly designed and manufactured in the UK and almost all of our core components in the products are also from the UK supply chain. So we've got a massive big um, UK credentials. But I guess what a lot of uh, people don't realise is actually our lighting capability as well. We also manufacture our own lighting for the cameras and we have um, range capabilities on those, um, particularly for IR and white light, um, which really do stand us apart uh, from a lot of our other peer uh, camera manufacturers. So, so that's pretty significant. Um, but I think certainly a couple of the key uh, credentials uh, for us, um, particularly in the public space market, is our, is our green um, credentials. They're super low power. Uh, uh, our camera technology is, um, you know, regardless of, of whether you have um, uh, all the lighting capability on certainly we operate down to as low as 12 watts which is is significant because when you're looking at um some of these public space uh, customers within their tender process um you know within their own directives they're geared much more to not just green technology and and certainly energy saving um, but also security of those products on a network um, and certainly for a big part of our customer base um, which are high security their c and i 
a lot of those companies, um, you know, really do, they they want those um, uh, those manufacturers with those credentials. It's um, it's very important uh, in these times as well. I guess uh, for me, though, the resounding fact that um, stands as apart from every other manufacturer out there at the moment is really our ability to do this uh, flexible product approach. So that means that even just a minor modification or whether it's a, a complete case change or reducing the weight of the product, you know, we we are not just, we don't just sell out um, a core product range and push those out into the market. You know, a lot of these um, strategic customers that we're involved in really do value the fact that we do um, kind of bespoke solution design uh, for their particular application. Um, and that also extends to the fact that we have um, a number of third-party integrations, including radar and certainly our radar capability um, it's very unique in, in the market and also wireless. So we do like to partner up with other really um, sound technology providers to give, um, I guess, um, enhance our overall product offering. But for me, as a newcomer into the business, it's hugely exciting to see such not just a massive uh, differentiation, but so much massive potential within that business um, to, to grow the business going forward as well. You've obviously continued to grow as a business, as you said, Zara, and made some significant recruitment moves in the past few months in that regard. Can you tell us about those, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I've, I guess the first point to say there, Brian, is these are all new roles into our business. Um, and the reason that they're significant to us is actually when I joined um, back in January, part of my um, remit really um, uh, from the beginning was to look across the business, um, see where we were strong, certainly with customers and clients and things, and identify um, those particular gaps. So where we've made those recruitments, certainly we've um, had um, some new uh, sales resource out in Europe. We've um, just appointed Ian Ferguson. And as you know, uh, we've also created an internal sales team. I mean, obviously, we had internal sales admin and that um, type of resource before. But but really, to, to get a deeper level of communication with not just our existing clients and, and sort of keeping that up, but obviously reaching now into those end users and, and consultants as well. So it, it's really just been a case of putting more uh, resource behind it to get the growth that we actually need. Um, and I think it's fair to say, um, you know, keep watching this space because we've got um, some significant recruitments to come sort of particularly in the international market going forward into the next um, three to six months so so we're 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 growing significantly and then we're going to keep that on track as well mark over to you now what's your vision for the company in the next five years so well, I mean, touching upon what Sarah's just mentioned there, um, export-wise, uh, 360 has been growing. In fact, it's been doubling its its export business year on year for the last three years. So really, as part of the recruitment drive, uh, we do want to establish more uh, global reach uh, with, with global networks of, of both employees and also um, dedicated service centers in, in sort of export markets as well. But I think if, if I actually look at the market that we're directly involved, Involved in, which is obviously surveillance cameras. I think the, the shift across to sort of subscription services um, is a very hot topic at the moment. So whereby, you know, we're emulating pretty much what's in the mobile phone market, where we can actually bring technology and intelligence to cameras from the word go straight out of the box but actually switch them on and off on a subscription basis pretty much at will. So I think we're going to see an awful lot more with regards to video analytics and, and AI. Uh, I think that's going to feature very, very heavily. For our own 
particular company roadmap, then obviously we're looking at higher resolution, so 4K and even into 8K technologies, and also the expansion as well of, of thermal and, and radar, which Sarah mentioned earlier on as well, because these are exciting technologies. I mean, the problem with CCTV surveillance has always been that it's a, a very reactive uh, technology solution. Uh, and we see a lot of very, very clever technology out there at the moment that, that complements our product range uh, and actually makes it you know, a seriously proactive solution. So I, I, I'm excited to see what new technology is actually coming out there, but we've got a very firm roadmap of, of where we want to go. And I think a lot of that, as I mentioned, you know, centers around subscription and, um, and the bolt-on technology that can be added to our solutions. And Zara, with so many people working from home and restrictions placed on travel and meeting people, in what ways has the business changed its approach towards the sales function during the lockdown periods, would you say? That's an interesting one. Um, Mark obviously touched a little bit earlier on some of the um, different approaches. I, I, I guess for me as coming in new in a business development role, it was very interesting. You know, I got two months into the business and actually I had to completely change, I guess, my approach, um, you know. Um, but what was nice for me uh, was I was having conversations with customers in all different levels of the business, all different sectors. I was able to get a lot of really um, interesting feedback on customer experiences and things like that in the business. Um, outside of that, uh, we've done, uh, we've developed quite a lot of learning sessions. We've had um, great take up on that. Um, we've, it's probably enabled us to do more, I would say, Brian, certainly on the marketing front, um, particularly social media. Um, but I guess the other possible consideration that we had was actually, you know, for when you're, you're kind of um, looking after a team of people that are used to getting out there on the roads in front of customers and having that customer interaction and that engagement with the customer it is a massive culture change uh, you know we all work from home we're all used to working from home but to suddenly find yourself in the home environment all the time uh, working is I think it's been quite difficult I think it's been difficult for so many actually um, from that point of view so one of the key things at, at the beginning of this um, COVID was we, we realised is that we had to get um, more team meetings going we had to uh, make an effort to, to reach out to the team on a regular basis and, um, and actually um, going forward now we're having we've we've uh, we've got weekly meetings actually weekly update meetings but they've been really positive at helping to keep all of the team on board and and motivated uh you know we we've we've recruited as you know um we've recruited new people into the business and we've never actually met them face to face uh which is is um, very unusual in itself but certainly from point of view of the types of roles that those new individuals are doing it's quite difficult i think if you're at home without kind of the social interaction of an office um you know, so so I guess it's just been recognising as well that outside of just sort of changing our sales approach, actually it's, it's kind of being um, a bit more aware of how our people are uh, managing and and um, and how motivated they're feeling, and just keeping a general eye on that. And um, the good news is everybody's absolutely firing on all cylinders. But it was just another consideration, I guess, with um, with this type of environment. You know, just making sure that people were coping. Uh, you know, with that with that significant change. Um, but it's but from our point of view, I think, as Mark said, you know, it's been um, we've had so much positivity coming out of this, uh, you know, be it from just um, general marketing um, and, and, and lots of that working for us, as well as kind of client requirements and things coming out, up out of this uh, situation as well. And finally, could each of you put forward three key words that you feel sum up 360 Vision Technologies products and solutions? Mark, I'll ask you first. OK, um, just three, Brian. 
No problem. Um, quality, reliability, and innovation. Those would be my three words for 360. And Sarah? Uh, my three words would be flexible, customer-focused, and secure. That brings us to the end of this latest edition of the Security Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Neil Williams of Raman Ravelli and also Mark Rees and Zara Fisher from 360 Vision Technology for their highly valued contributions. Many thanks also to our podcast sponsors, the Security Event. The Security Event runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 27th, 28th and 29th of April 2021. To register for the show, visit www.thesecurityevent.co.uk. Don't forget to visit our website at www.fsmatters.com forward slash security hyphen matters, where you can view our podcasts and read the latest news and opinion from the security business sector. You can also access our dedicated features content and sign up to receive our weekly e-news bulletins. Please do contact us if there are any key themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag securitypod. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at WBMSecMatters. As a reminder, the Security Matters podcast is live to view every fortnight on Wednesdays. Please do like and share the content and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Security Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. To download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify, all you need to do is enter the term Security Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time.